0: I think that it is fair to say that we are living in days of great change, epochal changes. You see that in the weather. You see that in the area of politics. You cannot but notice that in the United States there are major political changes. It is a subject of debate and discussion not only in this country but of course in the U.S. And you don't even have to bring it up when you are in the States. People bring it up to you and tell you how they feel about the political changes on the horizon. There are changes everywhere. Sitting recently in a congregation and they had pictures of the men from the church who had served in the different wars and someone pointed out that one of the men whose picture flashed on the overhead screen was sitting in the congregation but that was a picture of him in the 60s and people were saying he was on the line the verb he was so handsome says a lot about him today. There are changes in our physiology. We don't look the way we did when we were children or when we were in our teens. There are changes. Though we would like to believe that there aren't major changes in our own lives and bodies, it is the reality. So in a world of political and social changes, a world where we experience personal change, there comes a word which I think is relevant for our times from the writer of Hebrews. And in chapter 13 and verse 8, which I want to fast forward as we have been looking at this book, but I want to fast forward just for today to reflect upon Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This statement is a reflection upon the eternal divine nature of Christ. It was said in the ancient times, in the Hellenistic period, that Zeus, the primary god, the greatest of the Roman gods, that Zeus, Zeus was, was, that Zeus was, and Zeus is, and Zeus will be. But the writer says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's an interesting description because in the book of Revelation in chapter 1 and verse 8. The writer could say of God, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God is recognized in the scriptures as the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come, God who is eternal. And I want to reflect upon this. I began to look at this some time ago with the students in chapel but I want to flesh this notion of Christ as the immutable or the unchanging eternal God. And one of the things that you need to know is where this statement is located in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13 is, of course, the conclusion of this book that has dealt with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 13, There are a series of general instructions given to believers. So the writer would say, for instance, let brotherly love continue. In verse 1 of chapter 13, he tells them, do not forget to entertain strangers because by so doing we entertain angels. He says, we are to remember in verse 3 those who are in prison. Let your conduct be without covetousness, in verse 5. So there are a series of general instructions to believers. But in verses 7 to 19, there are a series of exhortations which are primarily related to the life of the congregation. In other words, instructions related to how they treat one another and deal with each other within the congregation. And so he tells them in verse 7 that they must imitate the example, the good example of their leaders, that is their faith and their conduct. He says in verse 9 that they are a guard against being carried away by various and strange doctrines. He exhorts them in verse 13 to go outside the camp and to suffer with Christ, to identify with Christ in his sufferings. He says that they are to continue to offer the sacrifices of praise to God and do not forget to do good in verses 14 and 15. And verse 18, he says that they are to obey and submit to their leaders. Now, verse 8 then, which says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, falls between these two parts, the general instructions about how they conduct themselves, and then the instructions about how they relate to one another within the congregation. Now, those who look at this passage, at least some of them, have sought to suggest that this statement, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is out of place. It doesn't flow with the argument. Here you have a series of instructions about how to behave personally and how to behave within the church. And in the midst of that, the writer says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But I want to suggest that even though it might appear that this statement in verse 8 seems disjointed, disconnected, it plays a pivotal role. I want to suggest that it has a Janus-like role in the text. You know that Janus, of course, was the mythological creature that was seen at the entrance of many buildings in ancient times. It had two faces, one looking in this direction, the other looking in that direction. And suggesting that, of course, uh, the god looked back to the past and looked to the future. Well, this text has this Janus-like role that is, It relates to what comes before, and it also relates to what comes afterwards. And what is the relationship? Well, it sits there in the passage because the writer in verse 7 has told them that they are to remember those who rule over them, those who had spoken the word of God to them, and that they must follow their faith and consider the outcome of their conduct. Many of the leaders that he points them to, were deceased. They had died. And in this context, he says, I want you to imitate the leaders who had gone before you, those who had taught you the word of God and lived the Christian life before you. But ultimately, the model that I want you to follow is Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he is the unchanging one. The leaders may have lived before you, they may have given you godly examples, they may have passed on, but Jesus remains the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the statement also looks forward to what comes in verse 9. Here, there were believers in this church to which the writer addresses this letter who were being tempted to turn aside to false teachings, to turn back to Judaism. And so he says to them, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Christ that you received. The same body of teaching you receive from your leaders. Regarding Christ and his work, that remains true because Christ is unchanging. You must not change your views. You must not change and adopt other doctrines, strange doctrines, because Jesus Christ himself is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what do we make of this statement? How do we understand this statement and its significance? Let me offer at least three things we are to take away from the statement about Christ's immutability, his unchanging nature. First of all, The statement, Jesus the same yesterday and today and forever, means he is unchanging in his eternal perfection or his eternal being. The name Jesus Christ appears in the letter here and on two other occasions in Hebrews. The first we see in chapter 10, verse 10. By, the, by that we will, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And he's referring to Christ's unique sacrifice. He says we've been sanctified by the body of Jesus Christ. And he's referring to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, the God-man, one who is divine and human, Jesus Christ. He mentions our Lord Jesus Christ at the close of chapter 13. In verse 20 and 21, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's referring then, in this designation, he's emphasizing the humanity of Christ. Jesus Christ. Who is man? He's Jesus who saves his people from their sins. But he is the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, the one sent from heaven as a royal king to do the will of God. Jesus Christ, God and man, remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, in effect, that the changelessness of Christ embraces all aspects of. Of time. What he was in the past is what he is today and what he will be tomorrow. The writer then, what he does is ascribe an attribute to God that to Christ that belongs to God. He he ascribes what we call the incommunicable attribute of changelessness. Immutability that is found in God to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament speaks of attributes that are found only in God. We call these attributes incommunicable. That is, they cannot be communicated or passed on to anybody else. So there are attributes in God that are only found in God, like God's acity, God's independence, God's self-existence. Attributes like simplicity. God is not composed of various elements and parts. We talk about human beings as flesh and blood and body and soul and so on. God is spirit, pure spirit. There are not parts and attributes that are separate from his being. We think of incommunicable attributes like infinity. God is infinite in power and in space in terms of space and time god is infinite these are some of the incommunicable attributes but there are other attributes that are found in god that are found in man so god is holy and men can live holy lives there is love in god and love is found in men these are communicable attributes because they can be communicated well the writer now here in verse 8 is attributing an incommunicable attribute, an attribute found only in God to Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I began by telling you that the writer John in in, in Revelation says that our Lord is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. It speaks about God who is eternal and unchanging in his nature. And the writer takes this language of Christ, eternal and unchanging. One that has been used of God and applies to Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, God is depicted as unchanging. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you are not consumed, you son of man. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10 speaks of God, unchanging nature. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, those sons of Jacob. Well, or rather, declare the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So God is unchanging in his nature and unchanging in his purpose. James 1:17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. See, God in his person is free from all becoming. And I've said this, and I must repeat this, God does not have potential. God does not have potentiality. There is no hidden ability or potential in God that is to be developed. God is perfect. God is free from all becoming from all improvement and from any deterioration because he's perfect in his being. He cannot change then for the better because God is perfect, nor can he change for the worse. All cause and all reason for change are lacking in God who is perfect in his being. And the writer is importing this language of God's unchanging nature to Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, this language of the changelessness of God, the immutability of God, has been criticized from different directions in the past. Decades ago, when process theology was in its heyday, it was led by Alfred North Whitehead. And Northhead was influenced by evolution and the theory of relativity. And he claimed, Northhead claimed that a dynamic world could not have a static creator. That if the world is subject to change, then the creator himself must be subject to change. And the problem there, of course, is that Whitehead and those who supported him in process theology did not make sufficient distinction between God and creation. Just because certain things are true of creation does not mean that they are true of God. Creation itself is limited, subject to time. doesn't mean that God is in any sense limited or subject to time. And so they're saying that creation is dynamic, and changing and God, therefore, as creator, must be changing. It's a non secular. It doesn't flow logically. So you have, on one hand, those like Northhead, who or Whitehead, who said that God is not unchanging, deny the unchangeable nature of God. In more recent times, there are those who subscribe to a different view, though it is not entirely different. Those who are called open feasts, who believe that God relates to the world and relate to his creatures. And in that relationship, God takes risks. God does not know everything. He takes risks. He changes his mind. So God is evolving and growing with the creation. And one of the things that they would argue is that if you read the scriptures, you will find on numerous occasions, scriptures which talk about God repenting or changing his mind. In Genesis 6, verse 6, you have the language of God was grieved and sorry that he had made man. And so they are arguing that God does not know everything, that God is not immutable, but God is mutable and changing. And as I've said on many occasions, We must distinguish between divine immutability and immobility. Divine immutability is biblical, immobility is a heresy. You see, God, though he is unchanging in his nature and purpose, enters into relationship with men and changes in his response, so that when the sinner repents, God forgives him. When the sinner Sins, God is displeased. God is involved in a relationship with us. If we do good, he's glorified and pleased. If we do evil, he's displeased. God changes in his relationship with us. He changes it in action. If God looked at evil and good in the same way, and the same response, then he would not be a good God. But just because God changes then, he's grieved by our sins, Pleased by lives that are godly. Does not mean that God's nature changes. God is still unchanging in all of his perfection. He's unchanging in his nature. Unchanging in his purpose. The same truth then must be seen in Jesus Christ. He does not change in his character, in his being, or in his purpose. Now, some have argued that there is change because our Lord Jesus Christ became man. The Son of God became man. I want to suggest that we do not understand fully the nature of the Son. We do not understand the hypostatic nature of the Son, that is, the human and divine natures of Christ. Oliver Crisp, who writes and deals with the whole area of philosophical theology, describes the relationship of the divine and human natures of Christ by the language of periturosis, and perichoresis is an interesting term because it was a term used to describe the relationship in the Trinity. Perichoresis was used to mean interpenetration. When you ask the question, how did Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in a triune relationship, the early church fathers, like Gregory, said that there is this periturosis, this interpenetration where the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father— and the Spirit is in both the Father and the Son. So there is this joining, this interpenetration of the three persons of the Trinity. What Chris does is that he takes this language of perichorosis and says that there is in the nature of Jesus Christ an interpenetration of His divine nature into His human nature and His human nature into His divine. I think that that language, though not unique to Crisp, is somewhat difficult to grasp. In other words, we do not know how the divine nature of Christ interpenetrates his human nature. Nor do we know how his human nature interpenetrates his divine nature. And that's one of the reasons why in the early confessions and in the early councils, When it dealt with the nature of Christ, the early councils said that his divine and human nature are to be seen as united in one person without intermixture, without addition. Once you begin to talk about the interpenetration, the periturosis of the human nature and the divine nature of Christ, you run the risk of suggesting that the divine nature of Christ added something to his physical nature. Or that his physical nature, in in penetrating his divine nature, added something to his divinity. But the early councils were very clear in demarcating that there was no mixture. You don't have in Christ his human nature changing his divine nature, or his divine nature changing his human nature. He was both God and man in one person. We do not know how these two natures coexist in one person without division and without mixture, but that is the reality we have in Scripture. And I think that when it concerns Crisp and others, it is far better to say less than to try to say too much because at the end of the day we do not understand. What we do know is that our Lord Jesus Christ, by becoming man, did not change his divine nature. He had all of the attributes of God as God, the Son. The human nature that he took did not add anything to his divine nature. He took a human body and a human soul without adding that to his divine nature. And therefore, his humanity did not change his divinity. He was fully God and fully man. And the writer says this, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, unchanging in his being. It's interesting that the the book of Hebrews begins and ends with this truth about Jesus, unchanging. If you go back to chapter 1 of Hebrews and verse 12, the writer is quoting from Psalm 102, verses 26 and 27. And he says, in quoting Psalm 102, of course, all of this quotation here is a reference to Jesus Christ. And he says, Lord, if you go back up to verse 10, And, the, and you, Lord, in the beginning lay the foundation of the, the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hand. Verse 11, they will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed but you are the same and your years will not fail here the writer is quoting psalm 102 verses 26 and 27 which refer to god in the old testament a contrast between god and creation the entire creation is changing they will be folded up they will be removed but god is unchanging he takes this passage And he refers it to Jesus, who says that creation will be folded up, creation will be destroyed, but our Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, you are the same, and your years will not fail. When you go over to chapter 13, verse 8, you see the same language used, particularly in verse 8, where you have it in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, you are the same. And now in verse 8, Jesus is the same. The same language is used on both, in both Scripture. The writer therefore is teaching us that Jesus Christ is unchanged. Unlike creation which is transient and temporary. The Lord is permanent and unchanging in his nature and in his purpose. He's unchanging in his being, unchanging in his will. Because he is the everlasting son of God. The pre-existent son. The one who... Shares the exact nature of the Father. The one who is the creator, who is seated on the throne. Who has taken his rightful place in heaven. The one who is the heir of all things and superior to angels is unchanging. Jesus, the same yesterday, today and forever. It speaks first that of our Lord Jesus Christ who is unchanging in his eternal perfection. But how else are we to... Consider this statement. Secondly, this Jesus the same yesterday, today and forever means he's unchanging not only in his eternal perfection as a divine son but he's unchanging in his eternal salvation. It is not just the being of Christ that is unchanging. It is also the work of Christ that does not change. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today and forever. The book of Hebrews speaks about the unchanging nature of Christ's salvation. In chapter 5 verse 9, the author, the human author says, And having been perfected, Hebrews 5 verse 9, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And this eternal salvation involves a rescue, he says, from eternal judgment. In chapter 6, where he's warning believers to go on and to go beyond the elementary teachings of baptisms. He says they must go on beyond the elementary teaching of baptizing, of laying on of hands, of resurrection from the dead, and of eternal judgment. You see, Christ is unchanging in his eternal salvation. And the salvation that he gives is salvation from eternal judgment. This is a point that I think needs to be remembered. But what awaits us is not a prison sentence. It's not 10 or 20 or 30 years in prison. What awaits us at the end of the age is eternal. One either goes to heaven eternally or goes to hell eternally. Our destiny cannot be changed after death. And that is the reason why it is important that here and now we endeavor to find in Christ true salvation. Because only those who are saved from eternal judgment, eternal death here, will be saved forever. Our Lord is unchanging in his eternal salvation. And He's unchanging in His eternal salvation because the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus provides eternal redemption. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In chapter 9 verse 12. The reason that Jesus Christ is unchanging in His eternal salvation is that He has achieved for us eternal redemption. Redemption simply means to buy back. And the price that our Lord Jesus Christ paid on the cross was a price that delivered us, that paid eternally for our sins, for all our past sins and our present sins and sins, unfortunately, we will commit in the future. So it is eternal redemption, an eternal price paid to deliver us. This salvation, which is unchanging, which is eternal, not only provides eternal redemption an eternal price for our sins, It inaugurates an eternal covenant of which we have much to say, particularly in chapter 8, from which we read earlier. Notice what the writer says in chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting or the eternal covenant. You see, when Christ went to the cross, he not only achieved an eternal redemption, paid an eternal price for our sins, he brought into effect an eternal covenant, a binding eternal agreement of mercy that God has made with his people. He brought us into this eternal covenant, an eternal relationship with God. And this eternal salvation that Christ has accomplished secures not only eternal redemption, And an eternal covenant, it secures an eternal inheritance. In Hebrews 9 verse 15, the writer says, And for this reason, he is the immediate of a new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This is an eternal salvation, and Christ is unchanging. What I'm arguing is that the work of Christ on the cross, which secures redemption, which secures a new covenant, and which secures an inheritance in heaven, this salvation is forever, it's unchanged. The work of Christ on the cross that saves us, that binds us in covenant with, with God, and that guarantees an inheritance for us, that work on the cross is eternal and unchanging. It cannot be repeated. It's permanently valid. But he is also the author of eternal salvation only to those who obey him. He has won the salvation for those who will submit to him. But I must thirdly and rapidly say that Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever, not only points to his immutability, his unchanging perfection as a son of God, it points to his eternal salvation which brings for us eternal salvation an eternal inheritance but it also points Jesus Christ the same yesterday today and forever to his eternal intercession the book of hebrews makes constant reference to the fact that Christ is a priest and a priests who descended from the order of Melchizedek in chapter 5, verse 6, and chapter 6, verse 20. That our Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 7. We're told this in verse 23 to 25. Also there were many priests. Because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession. Jesus Christ, you see, is unchanging in his divine perfection as God. He is unchanging in his eternal salvation. But he's is unchanging in his ongoing intercession. That Jesus Christ possesses the power of an indestructible life. And because of that, he has been raised to heaven. And he continues today to intercede, to work for the good and for the advantage of his people. Because his work has been accepted because of its permanent value. And so his intercession... For us, continues unabated. He's unchanging. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Unchanging in His perfection, unchanging in His salvation, and unchanging in His intercession. You and I are often at the mercy of changes. There is not much we can do to change many of the circumstances. We have been for years in fact, centuries seeking the fountain of youth. We all want to find that magic pill that will erase all the wrinkles, cause our hair to grow back, and all kind of stuff. We want to reverse the process of aging. But there is no fountain of youth, no magic pill. Change and decay all around I see. But in the midst of a changing world, We who are changing beings have an unchanging Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Lord who was on earth, who wept at the grave of Lazarus, who was moved to compassion when he saw the suffering of people. So he would change a few loaves of bread and a few fish to feed thousands, the same Christ who wept over Jerusalem, the same Christ who was moved to help those in need, the same Christ who was compassionate and tender and patient with his disciples has not lost any of the qualities that he possessed on earth. Is the same Christ who is in heaven on our behalf. And it means that you and I can come to a Christ who will never change. That he will always be there because his life will never come to an end. Because his character will never change. Because his salvation will never change. We can be assured that in him we are secure. In him we have comfort. The same Christ who upholds the universe by his power is the same Christ who is in heaven. And so while around us we see changes. Christ remains forever the anchor of the soul. Because he's unchanging. His same love, the same love he has for you has been there from eternity. It will not change. The same power that he had from eternity is still there to work on your behalf. Christ is unchanging. And it means that you must find your comfort in him. You must not look at circumstances around you, but look to Christ who remained forever the constant. His purposes are unchanging. His purpose to save you. His purpose to help you. His purpose to give you a hope and a future remain unchanged. But because Christ is unchanging, you and I are called upon to imitate him, to strive to be constant, to be faithful first in our relationship to God. Because Christ is unchanging in his devotion to you, you ought to be unchanging in your devotion to him. You are not to listen to discordant voices that seek to lead you aside to false doctrine. You ought to be constant in your love and constant in your devotion, constant in obedience because Christ is constant to you. He works in his providence constantly for your good and you ought to work in all the affairs of life to make him known and to be constant and faithful to him. You see, Christ is characterized by fixity of nature and we must be people who are fixed in nature, faithful and loyal. But as I've said in the past, and I must repeat here, because Christ is unchanging, though it is a comfort for us, it is still a warning. It's a warning to those who do not follow him, who do not bow the knee and obey him. You see, the same Christ who the writer of Hebrews says is holy and undefiled and separate from sinners, The same Christ who demands righteousness and godliness and holiness is the same Christ in heaven. The same Christ who would not accept ungodliness and sin on earth is the same Christ who does not accept ungodliness and sin in heaven. And that part of Christ remains forever the same. It means that you and I can never seek to live in sin and hope to please him. He will never lower his standards. He will never change his demands for godliness and for righteousness. And if you are an unbeliever, you must know that you can never please Christ until you first begin to live like him, until you surrender yourselves to the righteous Christ and seek by his power to live for him. Christ is unchanging in his nature, in his demand. The same requirements that have been there from the Old Testament regarding salvation remains the same. That the only way we can please God, the only way we can please Jesus Christ is by faith. You go back to the Old Testament and you take Abraham. It was by faith. And the major patriarchs, how did they please God? By faith. And it is only the only way in which we may live and please God is by faith. By resting on someone else than ourselves. By depending upon Christ. By depending upon his work on the cross. Only by faith in Christ. You must turn from sin. You must trust in Christ because he does not change. You know, as parents we become a bit softer when we get older. Things that alarmed us. Disciplined our children for when we were in our... Younger days, when we get older with our grandchildren, we say, oh, don't worry about it. Let Johnny play. You know, it's not too serious. We change. Our standards change. We are less severe, less demanding. But Jesus Christ is perfect in his holiness. And he's inescapable because he will not change with time. He will not die. His standards will not change. And because Jesus Christ is unchanging, you must take comfort that he will always be faithful to you. He will always be there for you. That his salvation will always be intact to save you. But you must also be careful lest you sin against him and refuse to surrender to him. For he is unchanging in his holiness. The soul that sin shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. These things do not change. So may the Lord Jesus Christ comfort you with his constancy but may he move you to surrender to him for he also is unchanging in his demands for us. For Jesus' sake, amen.